Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther. And today, we have a friend of mine, Chris Stone. He is a senior fellow in space studies at the Mitchell Institute. And of course, he is a reserve officer. And he is a specialist in space, as you could can uh, anticipate. And if you want to read more about him, just go to his bio on the Mitchell Institute website. Chris, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about space-based missile warning and a topic that was popular during the Cold War in the 60s and 70s, then faded from discussion and is now back because of Chinese activities, and that is FOBs or fractional orbital bombardment systems. And so we'll talk those things today. And I think our, our, our listeners are going to really enjoy this. So let's, let's kick it off. I want to just ask a sort of a, uh, a random question that doesn't really deal with our, our topic per se, sort of does. And that is if you have to tell today's listeners to go read one thing, to familiarize themselves with space and the challenges of space, what would you tell them to go read? Space and the challenges of space. You're talking just writ large or are you talking anything? Well, well it, you know better what they need to know yeah, than I do. Yeah, yeah. So what do they need okay. to know? Well, um, I know this sounds like self-plugging, but I'm going to plug um, <laughs> something. So I, I wrote a book several years ago called Reversing the Dow. And uh, the subtitle is A Framework for Credible Space Deterrence. And something that a lot of people that follow space and um, are probably familiar with is a lot of phrases that like space security and space deterrence that have over the past decade plus have been twisted to mean a bunch of things that it really doesn't mean. So um, and then the other piece that is lacking in a lot of the discussions when dealing with the Chinese, as you mentioned earlier, is what their thinking is on these topics and that a lot of people seem to assume that if we think some way they think the same way and that's not the case at all they have a very unique worldview that grounds everything they do in the military sphere and even in the political and business sphere and so that book has a whole chapter that discusses the differences between u.s thinking on space deterrence and war fighting and chinese views on space deterrence and war fighting and as a result of that i think they'll come away with uh, a new perspective, a new understanding that has always been there. It's just for whatever reason, we have a, a tendency to do what's known as mirror imaging, which is basically projecting our own thoughts onto our adversaries because it's more familiar to us and we think it makes it a lot easier. So that's one one thing that I think would be beneficial to folks um, with regard to space. A lot of the organizational things in the book are a little outdated because it, I wrote it in 2016 prior to Space Force. 
but for the most part, a lot of all, all the uh, the ideology, the policy viewpoints, that's still um, a thing now because I wrote it at the tail end of the Obama years, and the Biden administration has pretty much resurrected a lot of that, um, or it never fully went away in the first place. So I think that would be something worth reading: "Reversing the Tao" by Christopher Stone. <laughs> well, it's always <laughs> good to plug your own work. Uh, uh. Helps book sales. <laughs> well, that I mean, I'm doing it honestly because it's it's used at, at Air War College and Air Command and Staff College as space programs, and they they they've ah. told me that it that it that it is a really good read. It, a lot of people like reading it; they find it eye opening, and I find that very gratifying that it's being used and, and leveraged by folks. So, I, I just want to share that with as many people as I can. Sure. Okay. And so, it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good too for book lovers. Yes. Yes. Now. Let's talk about space-based missile warning. Can you give yes. our listeners a sort of an overview of space-based missile warning and how it works? Sure. Well, um, there there are several components to to help it work. So you have the the space-based component, which currently consists of several satellites in in geo orbit or geostationary Earth orbit. And I'll explain what that is in a second. But in geostationary Earth orbit, you have uh, a, a handful of these satellites known as SIBRs, space-based infrared satellite system. And they are the latest in a series of missile warning satellites that goes back to the late 60s, um, early 70s. There's been three or four different evolutions of that technology. And what it does is it, it provides the ability to track ballistic missiles uh, it was designed for ballistic missile warning, both from a a national homeland perspective as well as theater ballistic missile warning for our forces overseas. So as our force projection expeditionary models kind of came to in the late 90s, early 2000s with the global war on terrorism and things, um, being able to um, watch for ballistic missiles, which proliferated the short range kind, the intermediate kind, with states like Iraq and Iran and North Korea and things of that sort, that became important just as much as looking for the big missiles from the Russias and the Chinas and things of that sort. And so you have these sensors on board, infrared sensors, as the name implies, that tracks the launch in the boost phase, which is the initial launch phase, when the engine plume is at its hottest and brightest. So as an infrared, it looks for heat. And as that projects up to its ballistic flight path, and the stages drop off and the engine turns off and it does its ballistic coasts um, through space and into its reentry, um, it goes cold. And so what helps us track during that period of time um, as it gets closer to the Earth over the horizon is phased array radars on the ground. We have several of those around the United States, um, Greenland, UK. And those are to help watch for missiles coming and going into America. Now, for theater missiles, we have um, little radar, smaller radars that do similar things like the Tippy 2 and other things that look for the warheads coming in through the atmosphere. Now, once that hits the atmosphere, the warhead starts to heat up again with the friction of the atmosphere. And so that heat is then reacquired by the satellite. And that mixing with the radar data helps us plot A, where it's going at least a threat range of where the missile warhead is going. And so if there is ballistic missile defenders such as THAAD or, or Patriot or whatever, then we can hopefully intercept that, that, that missile. 
and at the very least know where it is to be able to give warning to our, our troops and, and people overseas to get to safety. So that in a nutshell is how the system works. It tracks the heat of the plume. It tracks the heat of the entry. Radars help complement that when it's going through space and it's cold, but it has to be within, oh, it has to be over the horizon enough for the radar to see it. Okay. Uh, so as we think about these systems, we, you know, therefore, as you clearly said, ballistic missiles, and that of course leads to the question of, well, what about hypersonics and how does that affect our ability to track what a potential adversary may be shooting at us? Right. Well, that depends on where, uh, it's fired from in a way. So if it's fired from the ground, like a lot of the Russian models are looking at, um, it can generate a lot of heat. However, because it's fly, they fly super low, um, that makes it a lot harder in many cases for these high up there geo, which geostationary earth orbit is about 22,000 miles above the earth and it matches the earth's rotation. So from the ground, it looks like it's hovering overhead. And so it has constant stare ability is what it's called. So it can stare at a certain spot of the, the earth. It can look at multiple areas on that piece of the earth. And each of these satellites are around the earth in various chunks. So it, it covers the whole global environment. And so as a result of that, when a hypersonic is flown, it goes so low that it's very hard to see that heat signature and track it. Also, the ground-based radars are looking up at, at a at an angle looking for the ballistic flight path to come down through the atmosphere from space. And what as the problem is with the ground radars, as it is with the space not being able to see it, is that these ground-based radars that were designed to look for ballistic missiles coming in from space is that it's flying at below that angle. And so as a result, when hypersonics get up to the target area, it's too late at that point when it finally acquires a target to, to give enough timing, enough warning time to do anything about it. And so that's a problem that's being looked at um, right now from the hypersonic standpoint is, A, how do we get ballistic missile warning and tracking, not just warning now, but how do we have chain of custody from launch until impact of a hypersonic low-flying missile, not just the standard ballistic kind that we are used to from the last 60 years? And a couple ways they're looking at doing that is through low-Earth orbit satellites, medium-Earth orbit satellites, and a lot of these things that Space Development Agency, Missile Defense Agency is looking at. So if you want to go into each of those, we can just a little bit about how they fix that issue. Uh, or if you want to go another direction, go let ahead. me know. Give us, give us a sort of an overview of what we're trying to do about this problem. Sure. So as I mentioned, one way that I advocated um, doing it is you want to have a multi-layered approach. But right now, the main approach that the government is looking at doing is, is a proliferated low-Earth orbit construct. And space development agencies using what, and, and what their system is called is called the tracking layer. And what that is is several hundred of these smaller satellites in low-Earth orbit within like a 1,000 miles of the Earth that are capable of tracking those heat signatures I mentioned and handing off to each satellite as it's tracking the missile as it's orbiting the Earth. So as the as the missile is, is going around toward its target and the satellites orbiting the Earth, I should say. So as a result, as the missile's on its flight path, these satellites hand off to each other to provide continuous chain of custody 
to the target. And all that information from these satellites are passed up to another chain of proliferated satellites called the, tr the transport layer, which is supposed to transport this information through laser comms in real time down to missile defenders or to the people um, that, is, that needs to be warned and to provide hypersonic and ballistic missile trajectory warnings. Now, some people argue that that's great, but that's a lot of satellites. And the lower you are, the easier they can be targeted by anti-satellite missiles and other sorts of counter space weapons. And so as a result, maybe medium Earth orbit is better, which is halfway between that geo way out there, 22,000 and the, the, the 50 miles to you know several thousand miles low Earth orbit altitude. And so as a result, they say, oh, medium Earth orbit is the, is the sweet spot because you're high enough up, it makes it harder to hit even though it's, it still can be hit. Um, you need less satellites to get the global coverage. Um, and at the same time, you can still maintain some form of chain of custody uh, of the satellite. Now, many people argue that, you know, it may be better to have a medium Earth orbit and a, uh, and a low Earth orbit and get rid of the geo, which is kind of the argument that you've been hearing in Congress a lot is we don't need next-gen OPIR which just stands for Overhead Persistent Infrared, which is the SIBRS that we talked about earlier's follow-on that's currently funded. We need to get rid of that, just go all low. Um, people like me, though, and others uh, think that we need to have a multi-layered approach. You need to have a little bit of everything to give true resiliency to the to the construct. And that's a buzzword you hear a lot these days is resiliency, is, oh, we have the more, the more targets we have, the harder it is to take them out. My view is, is you want to give them some depth as well as breadth in your system and while a couple countries can reach out and touch with kinetics and other things at geo 22,000 mile level most countries can't but a lot of countries can reach low earth orbit so why put all your eggs everything is being put in low earth orbit and that creates concerns with other people with crowding and debris and all that kind of stuff so uh, i i'm arguing in a paper i wrote for mitchell institute a few months ago for a multi-layered approach and you can shrink down the numbers of satellites you need in each orbit based on um, the architecture of it. So you want to have persistent stare. You want to have that sweet spot that gives you a little bit of redundancy with the low, and you need that constant chain of custody that low Earth orbit can provide. So you need all three to do that. And you don't have to buy massive amounts of each of these to make it work. So people always say, what's the cost? Um, it's going to cost money regardless, and I prefer would have a more, I'm more about survivability than I am about resiliency. So those are some of the ways people are looking at it. But the, the, the goal is for hypersonics, you got to maintain chain of custody. You can't lose sight of it because they can maneuver as well as, as fly really fast. Unlike most warheads from the old school, they just fly as a ballistic path and it's fairly easy to spot where it's going. But these, these, manu these are more maneuverable hypersonic glide vehicles um, that, that, are, that are posing a real challenge. So... That's kind of the ideas that are out there today. All right. Well, it's about time to take a break. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and we're talking with Chris Stone on Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. 
Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeterred.org slash NucleCast. Okay, we're back with Chris Stone, and we're talking about what do we do about hypersonics. Uh, so as you think about the big challenges for space, and we the Americans, as the Russians and the Chinese have clearly pointed out, as we clearly know, we're highly dependent upon space. And so therefore, mm-hmm. for the Chinese who have, you know, they're not, they don't want to seek to fight us strength on strength. They they look for our weak, weaknesses and space is clearly an area it's hard to defend. It's, you know, we're highly relying on it. We can't really deploy without it. How do you see the United States as being best prepared or what course should it take to be best prepared to either deter the Chinese from saying, we're going to go to space and we're going to prevent, we're going to take out their space assets and therefore they can't deploy. They can't, they can't come to our doorstep or, you know, if we have to, to defend our assets or redeploy them, if they're taken out, what's the solution you see? Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of people think that the solution now is that resiliency that I mentioned before um, and norm building and things of that sort. And those are all fine and those are helpful things. But again, you have to go back to how the Chinese particularly, and, and the Russians too, but for the sake of argument and time, I'll just focus on the Chinese. The Chinese have written in their own documents, like you said, that they have assessed that our Achilles heel, our soft ribs, um, is our space component, our space architecture, and which I, I refer to in my writing as critical space infrastructure because of its linkage, not only to the military sphere, but also to our, our critical infrastructure of our economy, our transportation system, our agriculture, and, and pretty much all the Western world is plugged into that. So our daily lives are impacted by that. And they know that. And as you mentioned, also the Chinese see it as, a, as an Achilles heel to slowing down our ability to project power worldwide because it allows our smaller forces, conventional and nuclear, the ability to um, to be enhanced somewhat without the mass and the numbers that we used to have. It, it gives us a little more impact for the, for the small amount. And if you cut that out, uh, whether it's communications, command and control, um, navigation, targeting, whatever, that all routes through orbit. And right now, the Department of Defense is looking at expanding that more into space for survivability through their joint all-domain command and control concept, and as well as future NC3 for the nuclear side. And so my concern is, is we don't really have the space force that we need to actively engage Chinese threats in space, from space and to space, because we have designed our architecture for more warfighting support construct than we are into warfighting and deterrence. So if you look at the Chinese writing on space deterrence, they believe that you have to have combat capability in space to have a deterrent effect. 
current viewpoints in U.S. policy, if you look at the space priorities framework and the national defense strategy and other things, they look at deterrence through resilience. And that's not deterrence. A deterrent ha that the root word is terror. And if there's not, there's no cost um, imposed upon their forces or upon something of value to them, um, then it's not going to deter them. So resiliency by itself is not a deterrent. It's like hardening an airfield or hardening a missile site. You know, if there's no missiles in the hole, big deal. Um, so in, in my view, we need to have a space deterrent force that can hold their targets at risk, space targets, as well as ground targets um, as well. Because another thing about the Chinese is they're very mobile. Their military is very mobile. So their ASATs are mobile, their missiles are mobile. Their airplanes can move around like crazy. We're, we're talking about that with our agile combat employment idea, but we haven't really fully developed that yet. And so as a result, we're kind of behind the power curve. And so without that advocacy that we need in Congress and other places to have, no kidding, kinetic and non-kinetic space weapons that give us the ability to escalate, to dominate, as the Chinese are building out to do, we're not going to be able to match what they're doing, and we're going to constantly come up short. And, and that again, that could be nuclear level or conventional level or some combination of all of the above. So that's what I think we need to have is we need to get the Space Force out of the support role alone and get it actually into more than reversible counter jamming. We need to have ASAT missiles like them. We need to have a superior force to them and we need to put the threat back on them, in my view. Well, you've not given me much confidence in our ability to engage in space warfare with the Chinese. So, uh, thank we have some stuff. I mean, but we just we don't have the numbers we need. We don't have the types that we need. In my view, we have counter communication system, which is a jammer. We we have very few of those. And if you look at just the sheer size of of the Indo Pacific command region. I mean, that's half, that's 52% of the Earth's surface. The Chinese have been launching a ton of satellites, and they're becoming more dependent on it, too, for, you know, ISR, COM, and ways to deny us. And yet, we only have 16 of these little mobile jammers. Um, you need more than that to handle just Indo-Pacific, much less all the global requirements that the combatant commanders around the world are going to be asking for from a space standpoint. And so we need we need more of those. And in the current budget, um, Bounty Hunter, which is a sort of a um, a defensive system, it basically is a it's sort of like a, it it looks for for the emissions of jammers to be able to target. And um, they only ordered one in the last budget, and they have even less of those than we have of the counter communication. And that's not included. So we don't have what we need from a kinetic standpoint. And if you look at an escalation ladder model. Um, that I have in that book I mentioned, you'll see that the Chinese are developing the ability to escalate to dominate. And the only, only way to deter an adversary like that, that's very proactive in their deterrence, they attack to deter, we respond, and we threaten. Um, so they're a little more aggressive in, in, their, in their thinking than we are. And so it's really not a good idea in my mind to be behind the power curve with an adversary that thinks like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the Chinese term for deterrence way she is to coerce and so they clearly understand what deterrence actually is i mean yes they, they see it in a very different way we see it sort of as you know this passive we just don't want you to do bad things and we just want to yeah. keep the peace and maintain the status quo but the chinese really understand you're coercing us not to pursue our own interests 
Well, and they also demonstrate capability. And that's why when they demonstrated their fractional orbital bombardment system, that got uh, our DOD's attention enough to have a defense policy board meeting a few months ago. I think it was in late summer. And um, they, they did some discussion. I don't know what they're going to do about it. But a fractional orbital bombardment system is essentially a, a missile that launches a hypersonic glide vehicle in this case. And it could have a conventional or nuclear warhead on it. And it flies around the Earth. It could stay in orbit or it can fly a fraction of an orbit, thus the name, come back into the Earth, maneuver, hit a target. And they demonstrated they were able to do that. And the last time we saw that was back during the late Cold War and the Soviet Union had a system such as that. And we don't have defenses for that well, at this point. Well, so, we, so we're talking FOBs. We've switched to another topic. And FOBs is a big deal right now because as we look at our integrated tactical warning and attack assessment systems, both terrestrial and space-based, you know, they're largely focused on Russia and China and where Russia and China would launch ICBMs from so that they could see them as they launch. They could see them as, like you said, as they reenter the atmosphere. But with a FOB system, if, if you have an actual fractional orbit, you can send that system into the towards the United States from the south. And and right. we have no cavalier. You know, we have we don't have those those terrestrial systems in the south to to see those those potential warheads coming back in. So it's Well, we have one. We have Eglin. Um they were going to build a series of them, but they only stopped at Eglin and Eglin's primary mission is space surveillance though. So it's not ballistic missile warning like some of the others like BMUs or not BMUs now they have a new system, but you know, Beale and yeah. And Cape Cod and all those places. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's a gaping hole that could be exploited um, by these maneuverable vehicles. So it's something to keep in mind when you're looking at how you upgrade our radar systems and how you upgrade our satellites to track. And that's where that chain of custody comes in huge. Um, as well as space surveillance. Cause if it goes into orbit, you're going to have to see what it is. Well, yeah. And thankfully we have that a little bit. We're working on increasing that too. Well, that's sort of leads to one of my questions is so if they launch something in, into orbit, do we inherently know it's a FOB system and not a satellite or because if they put it in orbit, it can be left in orbit. It doesn't have to come down, you know, immediately. So what could we mistake it? for something that it's not and then when it finally decides to come in let's say it decides to come in uh atop the united states at uh you know at an angle of reentry that's unlike what we would normally expect or do we have good enough space situational awareness to know exactly what it is well as i understand it it depends on where it's launching from and it depends on what the rocket is so if it's launching from a standard missile site, but it flies a different trajectory, like a like a orbital trajectory, like a FOB would, um, then that definitely would raise some eyebrows that, oh, they're launching something into orbit, it looks like. Uh, what is this? So then you have to start monitoring what that is as part of the cataloging of things. If it's launching from a space launch site or um, instead, then obviously you probably could launch something into orbit and disguise it. That is a concern um, that several people in the EMP commission had uh, a few years ago with regard to North Korea um, and EMP detonations from space um, through a FOB-like system. Uh, typically, the, the orbital trajectories for FOBs 
that impact the U.S. are are noticeable. Um, like you said, they typically go a retrograde orbit down through the south and up to the north. They can go north to south, like a lot of the the projected um, North Korean trajectories would be. So it just depends um, on what we're familiar with and how good the pre-launch in intelligence is. And I, I can tell you from working for several generals in the past, they want to know what the thing is on it before it launches. Sure. If it's a satellite or if it's a warhead or if it's a hypersonic glide vehicle, they want to know what's on that thing. Uh, so left to launch is always better, but sometimes you're not going to get that. But as I understand it, um, I think the FOBs that was demonstrated, I don't think the news came out about that for months after it happened. It happened in August, and I don't think we heard about it publicly until like November mm -hmm. of, of last year. So, um, but yeah, I mean, to me, that there are indications that show you it's a FOBs. Whether or not we were able to do anything about it, <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's another story. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, because that's why they, they had these meetings to figure out ways to handle it. And in some people's views, arms control is the way they fix it. In other people's views, like mine, is having the ability to take it out. And when the Soviets did their FOBs back in the in this late 60s, um, we deployed a, a, a system of modified Thor IRBMs in Johnston Island that were on nuclear, they, they were nuclear tipped and they were on nuclear ASAT. That's the only real deployed ASAT we had. And their goal was to detonate over the Pacific, take them out while they were transiting space before they could come that south, that southern approach and, and take out our radar sites before a polar launch um, from the big ones. So um, I don't know if we have any answers to that right now. I'm not aware of any, but we should definitely have one <laughs> given this, they've demonstrated it. And they typically, every time that they, that they demonstrate a capability, they, they will deploy it. Yeah. So if it's not deployed now, it'll be a matter of time. So it's best to get ahead of that. Yeah. That's a good point. So as you think we're, you know, we're coming to the end of the show and as you think about what our listeners need to know about space, about tactical warning, about, well, strategic and tactical warning, what would you want to leave the listeners with uh, as we close out the show? Sure. I, I would leave with the listeners that this is not a, a, like a lot of people in Congress might think, just someone's pet idea. This is a real problem. This is a real threat. A lot of money, our adversaries are investing a lot of money and time and, and deployment into this and into targeting our space systems, um, ASAP weapons, as well as the space to ground munitions and space on space munitions. Um, and they're there to help, you know, with nuclear targeting, conventional targeting, as well as, as space targeting. So we need to definitely get after this problem sooner than later. The Chinese are seeking to become the dominant space power and the dominant power on earth. And while people still talk like they're a regional power, they need to read their own writings and their own speeches and understand that they mean what they say and they stick to their plans. So this is something that we should be influencing our congressmen and women to uh, to get after, to fund, and to deploy as soon as possible to get after this, this problem. All right. Well, with that, Chris Stone, Senior Fellow at the Mitchell Institute, uh, I want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us as well. Thanks, Chris. It was, it was enjoyable. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good times. Wow. What a great show. Chris Stone. Senior Fellow for, for Space at the Mitchell Institute. 
we talked about integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. We talked a little bit about fobs. We talked about Chinese threats. And I tell you, I just, I thought Chris did a great job. It was really easily explained. And there were some aspects where I generally think I'm pretty smart on, on it. because I've written some book chapters about it, but Chris, he really did inform me on some areas where I had to, to clean up my thinking a bit. So I really enjoyed having Chris on and I hope you enjoyed it too. I mean, that was a great discussion of, of particularly ballistic missile threats in space. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.